one of the, the first great, quote-unquote, civilizations, first great agricultural societies was in an area we call Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. You have the development of the Akkadian Empire and the development of concentrated wealth and power, that sort of thing. But, you know, for a thousand years prior to that, right, before the great fall of, of Ur and Uruk, right, you have these largely independent city-states. But what winds up happening um, in, in Sumer, it's a lesson for us all, right? There's several things that happened. First, um, the river shifted course and moved. So, so Ur, one of the great cities of the world at this time, you know, 70,000 people or so living in this magnificent palaces and, you know, wealth uh, beyond belief. The beginning of music, as we know it anyway, right? And, and, and arts, um, wonderful craftspeople, all kinds of stuff going on in the city. The river shifts course and it can't feed itself. So it, within 100 years, it's nothing but a pile of dust. Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. For a while now, I've frequently and ubiquitously espoused the theory derived largely from the work of Daniel Quinn, Derek Jensen, Chelis Glendening, and the limited studies of hunter-gatherer cultures I have absorbed. Simply put, it's this. Humans lived as hunter-gatherers for most of their existence on Earth. Actually, about 99% of it. Somewhere along the line, this way of life, built and maintained largely to be in harmony with all the other forms of life and life-giving sources on Earth, took an acute turn. A turn towards agriculturalism, and ultimately what we know of and often celebrate as civilization. As I've explored in other episodes, I happen to think this turn in the direction of what we proudly and almost obsessively call progress is actually a turn towards destruction. The first farmers and seed cultivators couldn't have known this, and we can't really blame them. But this mentality, which is described by Daniel Quinn in his Ishmael trilogy as the philosophy of people he calls takers, ultimately, and I would argue inevitably, has led us to where we are now clinging desperately to the idea that the natural world was made for human beings to do with it what they pleased, a way of thinking and living that has driven us to the precipice of massive ecological collapse, yes, the brink of extinction. I put this theory to Jim Dell, an anthropologist and an archaeologist who now works at Shippensburg University. I did so because I was looking for either pushback or corroboration of this theory from someone who is steeped in the research and a little bit more scientifically inclined than I. My name is James Dell. I'm, I'm currently a, a university administrator at Shippensburg University. Um, that's a relatively new um, turn in my career. But for 25 years prior to that, um, I, I was, and I guess I still am, an archaeologist. Uh, I have a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Massachusetts. Um, I have a master's degree in anthropology as well from uh, William & Mary. And before that, I was a history major at the College of the Holy Cross. So I've been thinking about these kind, kinds of for questions a for, a, for a number of years. Uh, my, my particular interest is looking at um, the, the rise and fall of social complexity, what we anthropology call social complexity. Why do what we call civilizations rise and fall? Why, why at certain times in the history of our species uh, do human beings enter into these complex political and social organizations? Why do they survive? And, and almost inevitably, why do they fail? I guess what I'd like to start with is sort of your opinion on this theory that isn't my theory that I've kind of cobbled together from various different sources mm -hmm. that basically shakes out this way. There are different opinions about how long human beings have been around in the form that we're currently in. Mm -hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with somewhere between half a million and a million years. Okay. Um, there are more conservative mm -hmm. people that would say no longer than 200,000 mm -hmm. and some who would go far, as far back as 4, four million. Mm -hmm. um, and you can comment on that evidence. Sure. The way that human beings lived, and of course it's long, a lot of it is long lost, but some of it is not, um, changed dramatically when we went from being, and of course this is a lot of generalization and reductionist in a sense, but the theory goes that when we went from being hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. to sedentary, so semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers to being mm -hmm. sedentary agriculturalists, mm -hmm. Um, that's when sort of civilization was born or as a result of that, as a result of being more 
um, concentrated. You had now division of labor, hierarchy. So you commodify food. Mm -hmm. uh, you make people, essentially, their labor has turned into some kind of currency, which has then turned into food. Um, and from there, we get civilization, and we've celebrated that in large part mm -hmm. for so long as being this wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, and yet, if we skip ahead 10,000 years and we look at what civilization has wrought with a critical eye, we can say um, on a several levels it's been very harmful, mm -hmm. certainly damaging to the environment, and has put us on the brink of um, eradication as a species, um, if not making the planet, and this is going way down the line, but making the planet, rendering it uninhabitable for, for life of any kind. Mm -hmm. So, so into that you can intersperse a bunch of political theory. That's kind of the assumption that I, that I make and that I often refer to when I talk to people. So, okay, go for it. Let's start with sort of the origins of humanity, if we will. All right, um, I'll I'll buy the five hundred thousand year time frame. There's a lot embedded in 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 that specific date because we there, there's pretty firm evidence that. Some form of, you know, bipedal, large-brained hominin was walking around much of the planet sometime around that point. That means for, what would that be, 490,000-ish years, um, human beings were, in fact, hunter-gatherers. And to assume that there was no form of cultural expression for, well for nearly half a million years is, 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 is fairly ridiculous. Um, but we do have a, a remarkable series of events that happened sometime around 17,000 years ago. And even to this day, we're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. But sometime around that point, we're pretty certain that the Earth began uh, entering into a geological phase um, of, of warming. The Ice Age comes to an end, right? The glacial sheets that covered most of the northern hemisphere, or much of the northern, northern hemisphere, begin to recede. And the temperature of the Earth begins to increase. Uh, it's just at that point that human beings, that Homo sapiens, as we now refer to them, um, begin to, uh, to uh, practice what we call agriculture. It's almost immediately following that in some parts of the world, within a couple thousand years. And, you know, when you're talking about half a million, when you're talking about 1,500 years, um, it's, 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 negligible. it's negligible. And one of the really interesting things that fascinates a number of archaeologists is that we have pretty firm evidence that we have the independent invention, quote-unquote, the intervention, independent adoption of agriculture in a variety of different places in the, in the world where there seems to be no evidence or really no plausible, um, you know, even feasible concept that people could have been teaching each other how to do this. So in, in East Asia, in Northern Africa, in um, parts of Europe, uh, later on a little bit, and well, around the same time, really, in, in central Mexico, uh, we have different groups of people who begin to cultivate seeds. Now, some archaeologists... Independently, in, completely. Independently, completely independently of each other, right? Um, if we take the American example, um, the, the earliest evidence that we have for domesticated plants is sometime around 10,000 years ago in, in Mexico. Uh, what we, the, the ancestor of corn, maize, right? Um, it's a, people don't necessarily see a, uh, an ear of corn today and think that it's a grass seed. But in fact, um, after thousands of years of domestication, um, what was really almost indistinguishable from a wild grass becomes maize through human intervention. So uh, about 10,000 years ago, people start messing around with um, creating new varieties of this plant. That does not mean that people did not know that if you plant seeds, the crops will grow, right? Um, the coincidence, if we want to call it that, or the causal um, relationship is that uh, around that time when we have this really rapid um, global warming, which is it might even be more rapid than what we're experiencing today, uh, some archaeologists and, and geologists have argued um, somewhat convincingly that within a century, maybe even a generation, sea levels rose over 100 feet. So we had massive glacial outwash um, coming into the oceans, and, and the sea levels rose dramatically. And as that happened, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, ocean currents begin to change, climate patterns begin to change. Um, we have massive extinctions of animal and plant species. 
Uh, and those animal and plant species in many, uh, in many ways were those that human beings were dependent on, right? So that if you're hunting, and perhaps we need to preface this a little bit, hunter and get, hunter-gathering people don't just sort of randomly walk around the landscape looking for something to eat, right? They are sophisticated um, people who understand migration patterns of animals, who understand cyclical patterns of plant growth, uh, who know when birds are migrating north along their flyways. Excellent trackers. They, they, they study the behavior of the animals in the landscape. They understand landscape change. They know, they know where the food will be at certain times of the year. And in small groups, they can live that way quite well. Um, and the evidence you know, is there. It's obvious. They did for a very long time. For hundreds of thousands of years, they did, they did this. Right? But then we have this massive global event where the temperature of the earth raises dramatically and quickly. And really, again, within a blink of an eye, within a few generations, the entire climate has changed, the landscape has changed, the river courses are changed, the, the migratory patterns of animals and, and birds have changed. And just to be clear, this is not because hunter-gatherers started driving SUVs. No, 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 no. This was a, this was a natural event, right? And for better or for worse, because that happened, some of the modern climate deniers will say that you know, this is a process that's been going on for 12,000 years. Right. So this and, is a bit of a tangent, but, I, yeah. you know, it's important, I think, to recognize and state for the record that, you know, you are a scientist and you, mm-hmm. and you are stating factually that there is overwhelming evidence that there is a warming trend happening now. I think that's yeah. really important. You're yes, saying yes. a person who's saying that. There, yes, and there, also, there's a warming trend happening right But now. also I think that um, climate denier or no – However you use that evidence, yeah. it is extremely important to recognize that warming is not a completely and totally unprecedented event. No, no, no. The, the, That's really important. The geological history of the Earth you know, demonstrates that there are, there are these climactic changes that happen um, over time. And there, there have been a lot of hypotheses about what happens and why. Right. Um, nothing, it's a very difficult thing to prove, quote-unquote, why these things happen. Uh, there's there's plenty of um, uh, hypotheses about you know the Earth shifting just a little bit on its axis. Um, some have argued that um, there the plate tectonics shifted to the point uh, at one point around that time where the Gulf Stream, what we now call the Gulf Stream, just shifted enough that it started moving north and started to melt the northern glaciers, okay. and that started a, a cyclical event that couldn't that couldn't be stopped because once once those ice sheets begin to melt then it's very difficult to get them to, to change direction uh, without some other kind of intervening force. And that it's important to recognize why that happens. One of the things that happens is that perhaps um, counterintuitively, um, the ocean temperatures begin to drop because the, there's, more, there's more ice yeah. right in, in the water. That changes precipitation patterns. Right. And when cold rain starts to fall instead of snow, ice begins to melt at a more rapid pace. Okay. Right, and again, um, you have one of I think perhaps the most poorly understood but important processes again is the flow of water in the ocean because once you have convection of the cold water and the warm water, right? You'll you'll and this is kind of happening today. You'll have more intense storms right. happening, um, and uh, again, the the flow of the warm water from the southern uh, hemisphere from the equator, right, will shift, and as that warm water moves farther to the north. You have uh, an impact in, in temperature. And that's happening right now. We're that's, having like the currents are, sh- are reversing? Uh, they're shifting. I, don't, I wouldn't say that they're reversing, but, they're, but they are shifting uh, a little bit. Uh, I'm not a climate scientist, so I can't really talk to in, in, with much authority about that. But that's one of the great fears is that um, if, if the northern ice sheets, if the, if the, if the um, polar ice cap in the north really totally melts. And people have been saying that it's possible in the next 50 years that you'll be able to take a boat right across the North Pole. If that really happens, um, the temperature of the North Atlantic might shift to the point where the Gulf Stream will shift direction. And if that shifts a little bit to the south, what will wind up happening is that northern Europe will become much colder um, and uh, potentially Africa will become more warm and dry. So, again, this is, this is why I think most people now prefer to call it climate change rather than global warming. It's important, again, to, to recognize and, and, and reiterate that these are theories as to why um, the planet warmed up so quickly right. and, and, and things. But it is extremely important to recognize that it already happened mm-hmm. and to take that as a sort of a point of departure for perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps, why things began to change socially. Right. right. 
right. um, and ultimately anthropologically. So why don't you take it from there? Well, okay. 17,000 years ago. 17,000 years ago, the, the, no, no scientist worth their salt would argue that there was a warming trend 17,000 years ago. And human beings um, were forced with uh, a difficult situation. Many, anyway, not all, but some were faced with a situation where their uh, source of food that their ancestors had been utilizing and exploiting for generations, maybe thousands of years, um, began to go extinct, or their migration patterns stopped. Um, They shifted directions as the climate change uh, went, uh, and they had to make a choice. Uh, Do we move to follow the animals? Um, Can we move? Because, of course, there were other groups of human beings that were in other territories, um, or do we try to uh, sort of reinvent our mode of living? Um, do we um, start to rely on different kinds of foods that we know exist, right? Here's another thing to remember, right? We, we sometimes call agriculture an invention, right, that yeah. agriculture was invented. A revolution. People knew how to plant seeds, right? And there's also kind of a sexist assumption here um, that I'll explore very very quickly. In most societies, most historical societies that we know, in other words, those societies that were still sort of pre-industrial, pre-agricultural at the time that the Europeans began to spread out along um, their trade routes in the 15th century, um, agriculture was something that was um, uh, conducted primarily by women, right? If you go to hunter-gatherer societies, right, the hunting is generally done by the men, in the gathering, the plant knowledge is generally something that's controlled by, by women. So if we have invention of agriculture, it's probably something that women in society were, were doing. Those women, for generations past, understood the properties of plants. They knew what soils they grew in. They knew how to water the plants. They knew how to care for them. And as a matter of fact, the, the species that become uh, the domesticated plants that we're now used to would have been their ancestors, would have been exploited by these same populations. They knew that if you take certain grass seeds and pound them out and add some water, you're going to make something that's edible, right? That's something that was known for thousands and thousands of years, most likely, because I'll just throw another little piece of biology in there since we're at it. One of the reasons that human beings, our species, has become so dominant on the planet is because we are so flexible in the kinds of foods that we can eat. Um, We can, uh, depending, you know, Speaking in terms of populations, we can adapt to nearly every climate and to nearly every food source from raw whale blubber um, in the far Arctic to, uh, to, to um, pine cone seeds in the, in the Great Basin um, in Western North America. Human beings can consume almost anything. Um, within reason. Um, and, and they do. And they do. And it's one of the great reasons why we have such cultural diversity that we do have today. Um, it's something that's inherent, and it's one of the things that made our, our species so successful, um, evolutionary. When can write a hi- I mean, when people have written histories of, you know, anthropological histories based on food, yeah. right? The history yeah. of humans through, through consumption of food. It's okay. clearly very important, right? You've got to eat. Everyone's got to eat. Well, it's, it, right. I mean, it's, it, it's, the core of the biological imperative, right, to survive, yeah. you n- need to eat. And, I mean, you could argue that's, like, the one thing that you absolutely have to do. Um, right, and if, if your food source dries up, if your primary food source, if your first choice of food dries up, then you have to rely on your second or third or fourth choice. And most likely, for most societies, um, the, the seeds that they were um, cultivating for, um, for consumption were one of the last choices, you know, because they're, it's hard to produce, right? right? Um, you get very little yield, right, per plant. Um, you have to actually manipulate the plants to, to make them grow. You have to go in there and weed them. You have to prevent other animals from eating the seeds. It's very difficult work. You know, I've worked on a farm. Anybody who's worked on a farm knows how difficult yeah. it is. Another technical question, yeah. which I always think is really important and I don't think it gets asked enough. Mm-hmm. You're talking um, extensively about hunter-gatherers. How do you know anything about them? Mm-hmm. Right? They're long gone, um, and the records are sparse. How mm-hmm. can you know what they planted? How can you know, you know which animals they tracked and, and, and killed and ate? What is the work of anthropology mm-hmm. um, in, 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 in trying to discover the truth of something that happened so long ago where the evidence is so sparse? Mm-hmm. Well, the evidence is sparse, but where we do find it, it's, it's very compelling. And sometimes it's not so sparse as you might think. Um, 
There's a place in in China, not far from Beijing, um, called Zhukudian. Uh, this was it's a cave. It's a limestone cave, uh, and in this cave, human beings survived, or they they pr- probably periodically lived in this cave uh, for something like a five hundred thousand years. Now, when we think about that for a minute, um, five hundred thousand years in one place, and over the course of that five hundred thousand years, what winds up happening is that you know just like like today, if you have picnics out in your backyard once a month and you don't pick up after yourself, trash will collect, right? There was no trash collection in those days. Um, you, would, you would eat. The, the uh, remnants of your meals would be left not far from where you were. Um, over time, you might abandon that place. It might fill in by natural processes with soils building up and, you know, you know the cave roof collapsing, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next group of people might come in a couple thousand years later, do the same thing. It's a good place. There's water nearby. We'll hang out here for a couple of years. They leave their trash behind. So we wind up having what we call a stratified sequence of occupation where we have clear evidence of human occupation. We have clear evidence of the types of animals that they were um, uh, uh, eating. Right. And in places like that, Jakutian is an excellent example. It's a limestone cave. Um, so where you have limestone deposits, bone materials preserved very well okay. in the archaeological record. So you can dig through it and you actually find the bones, the real bones. Um, sometimes they're fossilized, but sometimes they're the actual you know, collagen, real, real tissue that we find from both humans and animals. Right. Right? Plus we find tools that are clearly made by human beings, stone tools that were used and discarded um, in association with these animal remains. So we know what animals that they were eating. We also know what plants they were eating because uh, you'll have fires. And there's a sort of a a natural process by which we call it carbonization, where if you drop something into the fire, it'll burn and then it won't won't decay, right? And uh, carbonized seeds will preserve forever, practically, in the right contexts. And it just so happens that you know, campfires in a limestone cave is one of those places where they will preserve almost forever. So we have we can reproduce seeds that are thousands and thousands of years old, and actually see what plants the people were were eating. So there's there's evidence of what people were doing, where they were on the landscape, and you know what they were eating. So again, uh, archaeologists are are pretty convinced that we know what people were eating before they invented agriculture. Another practical question that I always that, that I, I always find myself having to go back to and remind myself of because it's crucial and, and be as, as basic as possible in your explanation of this. Sure. Don't, you know, cut no corners. Um, how is dating done? Well, different ways. Uh, the most famous form of dating is what we call radiocarbon dating. Um, and radiocarbon dating can be done on, on um, organic materials, bones, skin, cloth, anything that's made out of uh, what was previously an animal or a plant, right? And the basic idea is this, that um, carbon is, uh, is an element, right? It's a, it's a mineral. But carbon uh, exists in multiple forms, um, what we call isotopes. The, the molecule of carbon uh, exists in different forms. And there is a form that's radioactive, which means that um, it has... Uh, extra subatomic particles that it sheds. That's what radiation is, right? Uh, an atom is made up of these little super microscopic little things we call particles, neutrons, electrons, neutrinos, these are the kind of things. Um, certain forms of carbon will shed their electrons because they want to be stable. All living things absorb carbon through the atmosphere. But when humans breathe, we breathe in air. Air is made up of primarily oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. Right, so when we, we breathe in carbon dioxide, we're breathing in carbon molecules, right? And they become part of our body, right? right? Uh, just like when we consume food, whatever we're consuming is then used to build our body. The air is too, right? We absorb carbon into our metabolisms through breathing. Plants do it too, right? Through um, the, the process, the, what we call the Krebs cycle. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so so strong on my botany, but we just know for now that, that plants will absorb carbon from the, the atmosphere. Okay? Um, when you breathe air in, you're breathing in multiple forms of carbon, what we call carbon-12, which is the stable form of carbon, mm-hmm. right? And carbon-14, which has two extra um, subatomic particles that it wants to shed. And when you breathe it in, you're breathing it in at a, rel- at a, at a fairly well-known proportion, 
right? So what we do when, when, and when you die, whether a plant or an animal, when you die, you stop absorbing carbon. So what will happen in the remains of your body is that the carbon-14 will continue to shed its extra um, particles, right? right? So if you compare the ratio of the stable carbon to the radioactive carbon, you'll be able to predict, really measure, how long it's been since that plant or animal died. Right. That's the basic idea of carbon dating. And there, there are other kinds of molecules that do this. Um, carbon is not the only form of dating, but it's, it's the best known, and it's really um, one of the most accurate. So in other words, right, so we can date back tens of thousands of years what animals and plants people were, were eating. This shift potentially based on um, having to make a choice or having to adapt to a new circumstance, yeah. a new climactic circumstance yeah. led to in various different ways in various different places but essentially this utilizing seeds in a different way take it from there okay <laughs> so here's here's the beginning of many of the common problems that we face today okay. right for half a million years or more right if you want to go to sort of antecedent species we can go back five maybe even ten million years uh, our biology uh, adapted to constant movement to moving on the landscape, to constant exercise, to um, burning a lot of calories, um, to being anything but sedentary, to being active. Um, and people, uh, the cultures that had developed over that long period of time were developed around that concept that we needed to move, that we needed to move from place to place. Because uh, think about it, if you were a hunter-gatherer in modern-day Lancaster County today, right, and you were thinking about when food would be available. You'd probably be up at Middle Creek right now when the snow geese are, are migrating, right? Because you know that they're going to be there. You're going to know, know there's plenty of food. That's going to last for a couple of weeks. Then they're going to fly off north, and then you go someplace else, right, when you know some other resource is going to be available. Maybe the deer are starting to run. There's mating season's coming up, and you might know where clusters of deer come to, to feed or go to water or what have you. So you go and you utilize that resource for a while. Um, then, you know, they finish their mating season, they migrate, and you have to find something else. Uh, and you go to maybe a place where you know um, acorns are going to fall um, or beech nuts or walnuts or any other kind of thing in, in the forest. Uh, when those start to fall from the trees, you move to that place. So you move from resource to resource um, utilizing what you, what you can. And that's how our bodies developed over time. Um, once we have this rapid climatic shift 14,000 years ago or so, um, People have to abandon that lifestyle because once they realize that the resources are no longer available, that they've grown so used to over the generations, they have to more intensively use the resources that are now available, right? It would be as if today, um, oh, I don't know, um, all potatoes suddenly were gone from the landscape, right? How's five guys going to make their fries? Uh, exactly, right? They're going to have to move on to something else or you might more intensively have to eat hamburgers rather than the fries. Right, so that's that's sort of the situation you're in. Uh, the snow geese aren't there anymore, right? So you can't go and eat the snow geese, right? The deer have changed their migration patterns, so they're not there. Uh, the elk are now extinct, so you can't um, you know utilize the elk herds anymore. Um, but you know those grass seeds are still growing, so we now have to focus our energy for our good, the good of our children and our our progeny. We have to provide food to them, and we have to do it in the way that we can. So we start really intensively focusing on predictable food sources. And that's one thing about agriculture is it can be predictable, right? You know that if you plant the seeds in the spring, they'll grow in the summer and be ready in the fall, right? We get into the, the harvest cycle. The trouble with planting seeds, however, as I mentioned earlier, is that there, you need to intensively work the land to make it work. For one human being, you need multiple acres to produce enough grass seed to be able to survive for the course of a year. So you start using more land in a different way, and more importantly, you have to stay near that land because you have to watch the crop through a variety of different cycles of its, of its growth. Mm -hmm. And again, you, have to, you don't have shotguns yet, right? So um, you're not shooting the rabbits and you're not scaring off the deer. You have other methods of doing that. But just like farmers today have to, uh, you know, uh, treat their crops or uh, make sure that predators aren't, or uh, herbivores aren't coming in to eat the plants, so did people then. Uh, so they are now tied to the land where they're growing the crops. Um, and that is, begins this whole process of sedentism. Drive down, you know, uh, into a, uh, like a shopping mall or something, and what you'll see, you'll see gyms 
where people are yeah. on treadmills yeah. uh, and lifting weights. And, uh, you know, it's like a, seems like a, that's what we do, right? Yeah. But it's, it's absurd, right? That we don't get the exercise that we, that our bodies biologically need yeah. because our lives have changed so much because of this, this new way of living, this sedentary way of living. Right. Um, and it seems like that's, to me, it seems like that was like an enormous, I don't know, evolutionary or, I don't know, cultural mistake. It, it, it could well be. But, you know, it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to pass judgment on the people who made that decision, right? Because here you are, you know, will my grandchildren starve to death because there are no more elk or will I continue to be a hunter-gatherer, right? That's, that's in large measure, it's kind of the – it's a simple oversimplification perhaps, but those are the kind of decisions that people have to make. You know, are we going to die off as a, as a culture, as a group, or are we going to um, adapt to these current circumstances? So do you then see – for example, like uh, industrial farming, like these huge factory farms with, you know, cows standing in their own feces and, yeah. you know, ejecting tons of methane into yeah. the into the atmosphere. Do you see that as like a natural out- outcropping of this or was is no. that how do you reconcile that? It takes it takes a while to get there. Right. And if you look at some of the some of the famous um Agricultural societies. Take, take ancient Egypt, right? Egypt was one of the first great, quote-unquote, civilizations. It's one of the first places where sedentary living develops um, um, and to the point where we have the construction of great monuments to the kings, right? right? The, the development of, uh, of social hierarchy. Right. What most people don't realize when, uh, you know, the lay people who, who don't really know that much about Egypt, what, what they don't realize is that there's thousands of years that pass between the erection of the pyramids and the burial of King Tut. Um, this is a, a society that went through multiple phases, and over a series of uh, events, over a thousand years or so, you have the rise and fall of these kingdoms. And we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit. Um, just because you and I decide that it's in our children's best interest to stay on this piece of land and grow those seeds right. and, and now become agriculturalists, just because we do that, that does, doesn't mean everybody else does. And here's, here's the other part of agriculture. Um, that you have to bear in mind. And here, this is a really important part of the shift. Once you start relying on agricultural products, they're only good. They're, they only come ripe at a certain time of the year. And if you're dependent upon them for the entire year, you have to come up with technologies for storage. You have to store them, right? And just like today, if you go down to the one of the storage locker places, they're lockers, right? Everything's locked up. Why? Because if you leave them open, someone's going to come and steal it. Um, and there were, in fact, still other groups um, that were uh, experimenting with agriculture, perhaps. There were still hunter-gatherer groups that were roaming around. There were desperate people in some cir- circumstances. Uh, and there were mean people. There were, there were you know, folks who would say, all right, that group over there, look, they have that big you know, cave full of seeds. Uh, let's go and steal it. Um, and those kinds of things did happen. You know, so a m- number of things start to develop from that. First of all, you have to protect your product, right? You have to protect your seeds. Um, because you have to survive on them now for the next 10 months once, once they've harvested. Uh, and you're probably supplementing it with other, some wild food, you know, uh, for several thousand years probably. And we've, we've really up into the modern day, people still, or within the last couple hundred years, people were certainly supplementing their diet, their agricultural diet with hunting, um, fishing, you know, trapping, uh, all, all variety of things. But um, you do start to develop uh, territoriality, Right. Uh, as a group, because you have to protect not only your stored seeds, but you have to protect your growing crops, not only from animals, but from other human beings. And that's when we start to develop, um, we see in the archaeological record, we start to see first villages and later what we call cities develop, where you have walls built around things, you have defensive structures being built, you have the development of weaponry um, to protect societies from uh from each other. Is there an argument to be made then there about this shift in the way of life leading to, I, I don't know, the word I think of is materialism. And that like if yeah. you are semi-nomadic, yeah. you aren't, like there's no point in buying a television if you're all together, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you're just going to have to carry it with you. Yeah. Um, once you settle down, yeah. and as you say, for practical reasons, you got to stick around mm-hmm. to cultivate your crops, yeah. um, then you start to accumulate stuff you do. And you do. whether that stuff is, a, is something as practical as a cave full of seeds, right. really important, right. or 
the kind of like cottage industry stuff that begins to come out result out of that mm-hmm. then then that's a whole different way of living and a whole different mindset and a whole different set of values yeah and then when you talk about sure. wars of conquest mm-hmm. um, from what I know of again you are much more steeped in in the research but from what I know yes you had conflict between different groups of hunter-gatherers but they didn't mm-hmm. go to the level of complete decimation no. of the other tribe no. Oh, get, let me get your reaction to this. You're a sedentary group. You're beginning to build these villages, which later become cities. The more food you grow, mm-hmm. the greater your population becomes. Yes. Um, when your population begins to swell, you need more land, more mm-hmm. land for them to live on and more land for them to cultivate. Yes. When that happens, that's when conflict arises because then you are literally searching for Space. You're searching mm-hmm. for more land to cultivate, mm-hmm. and that's when you come to blows with other tribes. Now, yeah. I, I take you f- fully at your point that other tribes, maybe they're malicious to begin with, and they begin to see something that people have that they don't have. Yeah. That's maybe natural, maybe not. I, I take yeah. you totally at that. But I also see this as being a huge factor yeah. um, in that this is the beginning of, dare I say, modern warfare, wars of conquest, it, uh, wars over resources. You're right. Um from the evidence that, that we've been able to glean, um, sort of pre-agricultural warfare was largely ritualized. So, uh, you know, the, the, the danger, if, you, if you're a group and you decide to walk into uh, an, an encampment and kill every single person that you see, you're in danger of someone else doing that exact same thing to you, right? So, you know, in, in modern warfare, there's a concept called the rules of engagement, right, that um, sort of establishes the boundary of what's legal and illegal in warfare, it's kind of a strange concept, but it does exist amongst um, folks in the military. Um, the rules of engagement would have been largely um, symbolic, that two groups of primarily young men would meet on a field, a battlefield, as it were, um, that'd likely be uh, you know, decked out in uh, elaborate costuming. Um, we see this a lot in, in, uh, in warrior cultures. Uh, and they would, they would have a fight, right? They would fight, people would die. Um, but typically, the the um, the goal would be the capture or the humiliation of the other team's leader, as it were. And at that point, the conflict oh. is over, right? Um, the dispute is done, right? We we beat you, and everyone goes back, and you know maybe prepares for the next battle years later, maybe. But um, you're absolutely right. What winds up happening is that there's a shift in the nature of warfare to uh, warfares of conquest. And one of the best examples we have about this archaeologically is what happens in in Central America amongst a group known as the Maya. A lot of people have heard about the Maya. The Maya uh, were an agricultural civilization. They went through many of these same processes that we talked about. Um, Their ancestors uh, were hunter-gatherers in the the rainforests uh, of uh, Central, Central America. Um, eventually, they uh, adopted agriculture, and these small settlements begin to develop into what European folks normally call city-states, right? Small, um, you know, polities with a king, all right, who's the king of the city. There may be 20, 30, 40, maybe 70,000 people under the sway of that king. But just a few miles down the road, there's another king, right, who has the same kind of city, right? And they, they, they will engage sometimes in this ritual warfare, right? I'll, typically... Um, on on borders, maybe they're after resources, but really the goal is to to beat the other guy's king, to capture their king, bring him back to your town, and humiliate him in front of the population. Maybe make him work in the fields, demonstrate that our king is better than your king, that, that kind of thing, and then maybe ransom him back, uh, or maybe keep him as a slave for the rest of his life. To establish that you are not to be messed with. Right, right. That, that we're more powerful give, than you. You can give as good as you get, and you can. And, and you, you can't just run over us roughshod. Right. Uh, and that goes on for hundreds of years. And so sometime around 900 AD, um, there is a, a change in warfare. And some anthropologists who've looked at this have argued that there was, at this point, a drought in this part of the world, and there was uh, resource depletion. Some have said that it's really overpopulation going on, that if you're living in a small polity, your population continues to grow, you start to have um, you know, fewer resources than your population needs to feed itself. You need to do something. Whatever the cause, whether it's overpopulation or whether it's a drought, there does seem to be some um, uh, catalytic event that happens sometime around then, and these city-states change the nature of their warfare. So instead of them being um, the, just sort of these symbolic battles, and if you, even, if you look at the artwork that they left behind, the, 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 uh, the outfits that these 
warriors were wearing were, you know, had these huge headdresses that were two or three feet tall, you know, massive jade um, uh, ornaments all on their bodies. They could barely walk, never mind fight in a battle, right? So it was really largely symbolic. But we see a shift to lighter weaponry, and we see a shift to uh, wars of conquest. So instead of going in and capturing someone else's king or the son of the king and coming back and humiliating them, you're capturing as many people as you can from that society, many of the men as you can, bring them back to your, your, your town, and instead of putting them to work, you're cutting off their heads. Basically, you're, you're killing them, right? You're executing people en masse and destroying the city um, that you've just conquered, and in so doing, taking control of their territory, their resources, both human resources and land resources, um, to feed your population. So warfare, modern warfare as we know it, that involves killing a large percentage of the population, you know, hundreds or thousands of people, uh, is, really doesn't, doesn't happen. We don't see any evidence of it before uh, agricultural societies develop. Put in perspective for us where we are right now in okay. 2017, and you can add politics to this as well. Well, I'll, I'll throw this out there. Um, there, is, there is another great shift um, that begins largely in Europe in the 15th century, um, and that is, you, you alluded to this before, the commodification of agricultural products, right? There's always been some markets, right, where you go and you sell your stuff, mm-hmm. but you sell what you don't need. You sell your surplus, right? Um, and even in medieval Europe, um, most farmers, they were serfs, as we sometimes refer to them. Uh, local farmers had to pay taxes to the local lord and that sort of thing, tribute of one sort of, or another, but they owned what it was that they produced, right? The difference between... Um, what was happening for, you know, the first 9,000 years of uh, agricultural practice in the last 500 years is that we've gone to um, a, a set of practices where increasingly the, the products that are being produced on the farms are not owned by the individuals who grow them, right? They're, they are owned by corporations, for lack of a better term. Even, you know, some, there are still family farms. This is a, not a universal thing. But clearly, there are very few left, right? This is something that, you know, when I, when I was a kid in the 80s, um, you know, not a little kid, but when I was younger in the 80s, there was a, uh, a perceived crisis in the United States of the failure of family farms, largely because they were, the farmers had invested in expensive machinery and they need to buy uh, uh, their, their crops and their, their seed and all kinds of stuff. They wind up in debt. Um, they're in debt to the, to the banks. Um, they go bankrupt. The bank takes over the farm. They sell that farm, and there's a consolidation of property into big, large factory farms, right? This isn't new. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a curve that's been increasingly in, in its rapidity. Yeah. But this really starts in the 15th and the 16th century, which is why you have the development of what, you know, um, in, in the 19th century story of a Christmas carol, right, what, what Mr. Scrooge is calling the surplus population, right, people who, who don't have land, people have no access to the means to feed themselves. Um, that's a relatively new type of uh, a situation, um, which leads to a whole variety of other kinds of kinds of problems. In our current situation, um, if we do not have the means to exchange on a marketplace, we cannot purchase food, and this is really where what, what puts us in in grave danger as a society, because there are very few, precious few people um, in the United States today. Some clearly, but there are precious few who would know how to survive without a marketplace for um, agricultural commodities, you know, without going down to the Giant or to Stauffer's or to Whole Foods when it's built and, you know, laying down your credit card or your, your phone and swiping your Apple Pay or what have you, uh, and then getting food back in return. Uh, if there's a breakdown of that, which is not certainly out of the question, um, there would be social chaos uh, because people wouldn't know how to feed themselves. Are we headed toward a breakdown that looks like that? Do you see hints of that or do you see a pathway to that? There's a book that I want to write one of these days when I have the time um, because archaeologists have this concept known as the post-classic, right? The post-classic is a time period in the history of a civilization where there has been some form of collapse and reorganization. And typically what happens is that uh, in, you know, some of the great civilizations that we know are post-classic civilizations, the Aztec, for example, right? They rose up out of the ruins of what happened in Mexico and Central America and wound up becoming a dominant superpower of, of their day mm-hmm. through um, conquest, military conquest, um, you know, uh, massive uh, human sacrifice, um, all kinds of terrible things. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a very, it was a, it's a tough time to be anyone but an Aztec um, at, at that time. And we see this over and over again. 
um, there's some kind of a, a collapse episode, an economic collapse, a social collapse, an, an ecological collapse. There's any number of ways it could happen. Uh, society fragments um, into divisive groups, uh, a, a group that previously appeared to be coherent breaks down into um, warring factions. Uh, and from those warring factions emerges uh, typically a, a military group, a military cadre, a small group of people who are willing to be uh, ruthless, who take control of the government and uh, impose their will uh, on people uh, that are otherwise in chaos. Emerging um, with, as uh, the dominant group, controlling most of the wealth and the power, and uh, we see uh, a unification of cultural symbols so that um, uh, cultural diversity is squashed, um, that uh, religions are suppressed, that um, uh, languages are, um, uh, are eradicated, um, that, again, we see dis- temples being destroyed. Um, we, we see the, um, probably the, the forced uh, introduction of standardized uh, clothing and standardized weights and measures, kind of s- silly things, but certainly evidence that you have this unification of culture underneath a great leader. And that great leader, right, uh, often rules by, by the force of terror and the, by the force of power. Uh, if you refused to agree, if you refused, refused to adapt to what we now say is the standard, you then vaporized. you get vaporized one way or another, right? Um, and again, the Aztec are an example of this. Um, we, they, again, were a literate society. They wrote books. A few of them have survived. Uh, the Spanish destroyed most of them during the conquest in the 15th century. But a couple of them have survived, and they're largely tribute books that they would march into a village. They, would, they, they had uh, great military strength for their day, right? They, they were like the Romans in a way. They had um, large armies that were well-disciplined, young men who had been raised since they were children to be soldiers, um, who had military training. And you go up against the village of farmers, and they're no match, right? You, they can't stop you. They would march up to the, they'd said, have 10,000 perhaps soldiers march up to your village of 300 and say, you will pay us tribute or we will raise your village to the ground. And oftentimes that's what they did. They would just come in and level places uh, unless they agreed to pay this tribute, most of which then went to the very small elite at the top of the society. So we have a concentration of wealth. We have a concentration of power. And we have, um, in many ways, a, a military cult that emerges Surround, you know, surrounding the central leader. I'm describing something that happened, you know, 500, 600 years ago in, in Mexico with the Aztec. But similar things happened in in China. Similar things happened in ancient Egypt. Similar things, I believe, happened in 20th century Europe. You have the same kind of thing happening. Um, we are not immune to to this kind of thing. Um, that if there is a crisis, and there may well be, you know, if if there is a some crazy nuclear, small-scale nuclear war, and suddenly our ability to move crops around the country uh, is, is somehow constrained, um, or if there is a, climatic, a rapid climatic shift and you know, suddenly New York City is uninhabitable uh, because it's underwater. These things could happen, right? There is archaeological and geological evidence that you know, these kinds of episodes have happened uh, over the course of history. If that does happen and... Uh, we uh, allow things to continue the way they are with this concentration of wealth and power for the good of the few at the expense of the many, then we may wind up as a society in a post-classic period. Let me, let, let me end with, with an old tale, an old myth from, from Sumer. And I, I, I can't re- recall the source. It was the Epic of Gilgamesh or some other Sumerian text. But there's a story um, that's largely, some people think it's the origin story for Pandora's box, that the, the great, at the very origins of civilization the gods present the great man with, um, with, a, with a gift. And w- inside that gift are all that's wonderful in, in the world, the, the, the art of, of music and of dance and of civilization, of, of alcohol, of all the things that are pleasurable and good in the world. He says, but before you accept this gift, remember that if you accept it, you must accept the other side of it too, disease and famine, right, and greed and death. You cannot have one without the other. And in many ways, that's the bargain that, that, that we have made by becoming agriculturalists. Because we, have, we do accept it. 
it, it, is, it is very nice not to have to go out and plow a field for 12 hours. I've done it. You know, I've plowed behind oxen as, a, as an exercise. Uh, and it's hard work, you know. You know, at my age now, I'm in my 50s. I don't think I'd really want to go out tomorrow and plow for 14 hours behind oxen in the rain. But my point here is that we, we have, in fact, made the same bargain, you know, that in order for us to do the kinds of things that, that, that we do, that we love to do, that define us as a civilization, uh, we have to accept the inevitable, perhaps, um, dark side of uh, urban life. Uh, I know that we've had uh, occasionally conversations about the, the Enlightenment in the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries. Out of that idea emerged the concept of progress, that evolutionary progress is something that means that every generation will be better off than the one before it. And we've been trapped as a society into that way of thinking for quite some time, that uh, really it, it was a shock to many. Um, or it is a shock to many when they read lately that the, the modern, you know, the up-and-coming generation will not be as well off as, as its parents, as though that, that were something against, right, as, as though that were something against the natural order of, of the world. And in fact, that, that has never been the case, that one, one generation will inevitably be better off than the one before it. Um, and I think that concept of what the great, I think it was uh, Stephen Jay Gould called Time's Arrow, that uh, we will always be progressing. It's something deeply embedded in, in American and Western society in general. And um, it leads us to conclude that there must be technological solutions to whatever problem we face. And it's just not the case. Music for this episode of What We Will Abide is by Nick Peterson. If you like what you've heard and wish to hear more, you can find older episodes on iTunes or through my website, samschindler.com. That's Schindler spelled with an S-C-H. You can also write a review of the podcast on iTunes. This helps new listeners find the show. I listen to a lot of podcasts that are wildly popular, and it seems like a great thing to have a lot of people tune in, interact, and discuss your work. The ones I subscribe to often teach me things, and I find that the ones with hosts I like or can relate to are the ones I stick with. I honestly don't know how many people listen to this one, although I can't imagine it's too many. It's true that every now and again a listener identifies him or herself to me, which I have to admit is always flattering. What I'm trying to say is, if you're a regular listener, an occasional listener, an accidental listener, or even an unwilling listener... I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to me and my guests talk about things that we think are important and that we think other people should spend some time thinking about. Upcoming episodes of What We Will Abide will include conversations with activists in far-flung places like Chicago and New York City, another interview with my dad, and an interview with me, hosted by my wife, Jamie Beth, who wanted to know why the hell I started doing this in the first place. It's a good question. All that and more in the coming weeks and months. Thanks for listening.